Hey everybody, it's Dr. Colman Nocter here and welcome back to season two of the Asking for a Parent podcast. It is fantastic to have you back. Wow, hasn't a lot happened since we met the last time. We left off in December, we were heading into Christmas and talking about the arrival of Santa and all the different things that we're looking forward to and then we had the hope of vaccines etc and then in the last few weeks we've seen the numbers on the rise, we've seen the schools close, we've seen high levels of lockdown and uh, a lot of restrictions and limitations and as a consequence of that we've seen worry, well-being and things really escalate to a level that I guess is unprecedented and we use that word a lot in the last 12 months but these are really difficult and challenging times and we hope that in season two we'll be able to offer you some guidance, support, insight, direction and maybe some entertainment. Uh, over these really difficult weeks. We will be releasing one episode per week for this season and we will do our customary listeners' questions episodes. So if you have any questions, get them into us on askingforaparent.gmail.com or through the Instagram, Twitter and Facebook pages. We will be doing our typical celebrity interviews and we have some fantastic speakers who will be giving us their insights and telling us about their parenting journey and the challenges that they face through COVID, lockdowns, etc. And I, for one, am just really grateful for everyone who has continued to listen through all of Series 1 and has joined us again for Season 2. And I look forward to hearing from you, to getting to know you, and in many ways chatting to you over the next couple of months as we kind of ride out the storm. But uh, thank you and welcome back to Season 2 of the Asking for a Parent podcast. Anyway, on to today's guest. It gives me great pleasure to introduce my guest this week to the Asking for a Parent podcast. My guest today is an icon of Irish sport. Among her long list of accolades is that she's the Irish national record holder for the 60 and 100 metres hurdles. She's competed in two indoor world championships, five outdoor world championships, and is a three-time Olympian. As well as her sporting skill set, she's also one of the most identifiable women in Irish sport and someone who has a warmth and genuineness that's so engaging. She is currently one of the mentors on the popular TV show Ireland's Fittest Family. She has her own fitness, nutrition and self-care business called Derville.ie and is also the mother of two small children. So it's a great privilege for me to welcome to the Asking for a Parent podcast this week one of my sporting heroes, the wonderful Derville O'Rourke. Derville, how are you? I'm great. That's a lovely intro. Thank you. Um, I'm great. I'm um, like everybody else juggling lots of stuff in a very small confined life at the moment where we're not doing a lot we're not doing a lot but yet doing loads it's all very strange but we're good everybody's healthy which I is the thing that I care the most about probably but we're definitely starting to go off a rocker a tiny bit so I'm glad there's a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel now with the vaccine and everything so to situate the listeners, we're week one into lockdown three. Uh, we've heard the news of the school closures for sure. It's The numbers are high. There's anxiety around. People are, are very worried about things. We've probably been on more lockdowns than nights out in the last 12 months. Uh, and it's becoming, I think, tiresome for most people, as you said. How did you get through the first two? And how has it been for you this time round? I, it's funny, I was asked about this yesterday in an interview. So we're doing a lot of press at the moment for Ireland's fittest family because we've just come back on TV screens. And I was, <laughs> I was asked about it. And I said in a slightly unguarded moment, 
it was a special kind of hell the first time. And so obviously I'll say it again here. What I meant by that was like, so I have an almost two-year-old. He'll be two at the end of March and a five and a half-year-old. And when we went into lockdown one, like I have, I have my own business. I'm very passionate about it. I've worked very hard on it. And all of a sudden I found myself at home with two small children and a business that I was still trying to run. We have five employees. So I felt, I felt a fierce responsibility that our staff, that we could secure them still having jobs because the world just felt like it was falling apart. Also, then I had the the real mom head on me that I wanted the kids to be okay because their world, the baby, not so much because his world was kind of small anyway, because he's so small, like he turned one during the first lockdown. And ironically, he'll probably turn two during, during a lockdown. But I felt with my daughter, you know, she was, she wasn't five yet and she had so many pals and her life would be quite social and would have been, you know. And so I felt this real sense of her world and all the people she loved, you know, her grandparents, all of a sudden that was all gone. So I felt, I found it very stressful. I really did. So what I did initially was I tried to do everything. I was like, I am superwoman. I'm going to do everything. I'm magical. And I was trying to be all singing and dancing with the kids during the day. And then as soon as they go to bed, I was working late at night, trying to work to like one o'clock in the morning, trying to get everything done. And after about two weeks, I just hit the wall, like hit the wall quickly. (laughs) And I just said to my business partner, I have to only do what I can do work wise. And I just said to my husband in terms of the kids, like, obviously they're my priority, but you know, we need to figure out better structures and stuff. So I think it was, it was honestly really, really tough. And I think you get thrown into a situation if you have two parents working or whether you don't, I think there's just stresses like, so I found a very stressful period of being a parent. So I've been a parent now for five and a half years. And definitely the first time we went into lockdown is the most stressful period I've ever had in parenting. And I would have always said that I find the newborn phase hard adapting to having a tiny baby, but no, definitely being thrown into a lockdown. <laughs> I find it much harder. So that's a very honest answer, I would say. 100%. And I think it reflects a lot of people where people are at, to be honest. And in the first series, there were all of the contributors said, once the schools are open, we'll get through it. Um, yeah, which is what I would and, have said. Yeah. And it is a big difference when we are back to the homeschooling issue and remote learning and all that. And, you know, as a parent of a five and a half year old, it isn't remote learning. It's not like they can you know, log on and do their classes. It's, it's homeschooling because where certain people are, are concerned, I think secondary schools, maybe the students are looking for connectivity and wireless and stuff like that. For primary school parents, of which I am one of them, you're looking at ink printers, worksheets and all the stuff that's, you know, and I think getting an email on a, a Sunday with a, a list of work to be done by Friday, that's not remote learning either. So I do think there's there is a great deal of of pressure and anxiety. And I, I, my own little fella, who's a little bit older than yours, he's six. You know, he just said to me the other night, "I'm really sad, Dad." And I said, "Why?" And he said, "Well, I'm not going to see my friends for until February." He can't say February, but uh, <laughs> it was just one of those moments where I even uh, I just thought this is so unfair. Do you know this is you know he he's he's a senior infant, but he's had you know maybe three months of junior infants, then stopped, and now he's had a bit three or four months of senior infants and it stopped again. And there's an inevitable lousiness about it. And I, we lousy. all understand, you know. <laughs> it you is know, lousy. That's yeah. the word. <laughs> and, and, and we all understand the reason why we have to do it. But it's still, it's still difficult and it's still tricky. And I think that there's any parent who's not saying it's tricky is not being honest because I think it is, it is, it, this is a difficult time to be a parent. It's difficult. And I, 
And I think that's why I suppose when I said it's a special kind of hell, like I, I suppose maybe I felt this guilt then because I know people are in a much more difficult situation than I am. And you're trying to, you're going, you know, I need to count my blessings. We're healthy. We're well, you know, we have a roof over our heads, you know, thankfully work-wise we're fine, you know, but then, you know, all, all the, all the stuff that gives us joy and that connectivity has, is kind of gone. Um, and you just have, you just have your house and that like, we're lucky in that, like, there's definitely been an element of quality time and I was saying to my husband I think it has because we talk about this a lot now because it's it's just us here a lot I think it has benefited us as a family unit certainly in a lot of ways but then I just think for the kids lives and I think that pressure on parents and that stress and anxiety and that kind of and I'm like you know like you my daughter's junior infant so she would have missed the end of Montessori which I didn't think was a big deal at all. And, you know, Montessori kind of would have sent us stuff to do, you know, the ECCE years. And I, 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 to be honest, I tried to do it once, but at the time um, my son was one and he was like trying to love himself downstairs. That's the reality. You know, people are like, oh, that's lovely. You know, did you do a bit of crafts today? And I'm like, my son tried to jump off a table, you know, like he, he, he can't be unsupervised. Like he's a bit wired and that's his, some babies are like that some aren't my daughter wasn't he's just has energy and he's wired and he's all go so like we didn't get a lot of that stuff done the first time and then I kind of realized a few weeks ago you know definitely my daughter definitely just needs a bit of time into that fine motor skill stuff and I don't know whether that's because she missed some time in Montessori and then when the school's shut this time straight away I can admit a level of stress and anxiety came down on me where I was just like oh my gosh, like I don't want her to struggle with anything and then I want to put time into it. And then all the other stuff that we have going on is still all going on, you know, work-wise. So I think it's a fairer and more genuine thing to acknowledge it and to just say it. And like, you know, I remember being at a dinner. I think I went to, went out for dinner twice in the past 12 months. And one of those times someone said to me, who didn't have kids, and I don't want to be that all off, you don't have kids, you don't understand, but said to me, um, the quality time must be so relaxing. And I was just like, oh, my God, like it's been the least relaxing few months of my life. Like there have been moments that have been really special and lovely and doughty. And there have and we wouldn't have gotten them without this. But also the stress and anxiety has been up there. (laughs) And it's funny because you should say that because, you know, the mentally fit, you know, go out for a walk, get some fresh air. So I I did this the right thing the other day and got the Maitri and said, right, we're going walking and Two of them said, can we bring our bikes? And one said, can we bring, can I bring my scooter? And I said, okay, let's go. And I spent a half an hour shouting at the two on the bikes to slow down and the, <laughs> the kid on the scooter to speed up. And I was like, this is the most mentally unhealthy. And, but people watching were going, isn't that lovely? He's out for a walk with the kids having quality time. They enjoyed it. They had a ball. Uh, me, on the other hand, came back and said, I need to lie down for a little while. This is ridiculous. But, trying uh, to move small children, though. Trying to move small children from the house into gear out the door it's like honestly like I joke I you know people are like it must be like the Olympics must have been so tough and I'm like no no the Olympics were grand it's the small children that's what's difficult it's like you you get one of them dressed and then the other one starts to take off the clothes you've just gotten on them and you realize oh my god I had one of them totally dressed and now the other one had taken off all their clothes. Why are you in your knickers? <laughs> you know, you go, oh my God. So yeah, no, th- those walks look relaxing to people on the outside, but I can certainly confirm my, it's not relaxing for me. But I, I have this thing where I get the kids out once a day. I'm like, they have to go out. We have to burn the energy, but I have to build myself up for it. I'm like, right, 
let's just get a cup of coffee and just be mentally prepared. Yeah. And God, I, sound, I feel like I sound like a terrible mother, Coleman. <laughs> I think you're a parent and that's what it is. And, and, and there's a, I love that Michael McIntyre sketch where he says, you know, how you leave the house as a parent versus a non-parent. As a non-parent, you go, I'll just leave the house and you put on your coat and you go. And then it's some sort of military precision of you know, finding shoes and arguing about zips and everything else. Yeah, or counting. So. I've become, um, I, for some reason, I have no idea why I go on three. And it depends on my, my parenting style in that moment, whether I'm counting in English or Irish. I don't even know why. I'm like, I don't. And I'm like, you know, I've done it in Irish. I don't know what that means to them or me. But for some reason, I lob into a bit of Irish to try and really assert my status as the leader in that moment I'm like your leader is counting to three ask well let's do this i can't even speak very good irish i have no idea why it probably sounds more serious or something yeah. but uh the yeah the, the the olympian who does a countdown to let's go uh that's the irony there of being in the starting blocks okay. <laughs> so come here uh, in terms of your own experience we asked every participant on the the show or every guest what their experience of parenting was, because it's the only template we have. We can read every book in the world around how to be a parent, but nothing prepares you for it. So what was growing up like for you? You're from Cork, is that right? From Cork, yeah, I'm from Cork. So growing up for me was so different to, I think, how my kids are growing up in a lot of ways. So I grew up in an estate, so it would have been like 80s Cork. I was born in 81. I grew up in an estate with 50 other houses. My dad was working for Ford, worked for Ford all his life. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom, which I say to her now is, oh my God, the absolute hardest job in the world. Thank you for not murdering us. It was myself and my sister. Uh, We'd be very different, very different personalities. And it was it was amazing in terms of like it was a different it feels like it was such a different time so I this is how I remember my childhood basically the phrase can Derville come out and play is kind of sums up my childhood like when you're in a state right with 50 houses and everyone's kind of around the same age and everyone's lives are in the same phase that's how it felt there were just kids everywhere so it's like there was a green in front of my house and from whatever time in the morning, the parents obviously made decisions amongst themselves of what was reasonable for your house to be knocked on. It's like, can Derville come out and play? So if you weren't in school, it was, can you come out and play? And if you were in school, you were going to school in the car with one of the neighbours, kids, they were either coming in your car, you were going in their car. Like there was, it was like, it felt in a lot of ways like we were a small family because there was just two kids and a lot of the families had more than two kids. But then it felt like there was this big extension in the estate of just kids. Like, Like there was just constant stuff like it felt so it felt so busy and so alive and my parents like my mom put everything into being a parent to us and I think as a kid I would have looked at it as a bit like boring's the wrong word because it wasn't that I found what she was but I just found it I was like god she doesn't have much to do like she doesn't you know because I didn't understand I was a child and I didn't understand that she was making our breakfast, she was making our dinners from scratch, you know, like, so all those lessons I would have learned about, like, the things that are important, like, you have to get out for air, you have to, you know, you have to, you can't just be eating treats and chocolate all the time. Homework was very important in my house. 
so in school it was like you had to be doing well in school but not doing well to be succeeding it was more like you had kind of a responsibility to be learning in school so I think it was a brilliant childhood from the point of view of I think I was very I was the youngest of the two of us I'm the younger and in the estate I was one of the youngest kids in the estate so it was kind of like the final kids that were born of that particular phase in that in our estate so I always was running around and playing with kids that were like they felt way older but they might have been three years older or two years older or whatever and you become kind of hardy so like they're like you know you're out playing for hours like Red Rover Red Rover we call Derville over that feels like my childhood you know runaway knock like you're you're doing all these things and then you're getting older and you're going through different phases like you're going through the phase of you're a teenage girl and boys in the estate and who do you fancy and she fancies him and you fancy him and you're trying to so it felt like a very like fun and kind of just kind of a bit it just feels a bit mad because now I like we live in a house on its own like I don't live in an estate with my kids and I have some really good female friends who have kids that have become so important in my life since I've had kids and I kind of feel like I've created that little community with them that maybe my mom would have had in the estate but I have to go and get put my kids in the car to go and meet them and there's a lot it's not as organic maybe as it was when I was growing up so I'm always I'm always very aware of okay what were the things that kind of stood to me but I would say my parents were also strict but not strict like they were strict in terms of as as I was saying school like that was very important like I like I think it's really funny because people assume my parents were probably really pushy with sport but they were in some ways absolutely the opposite so sport was like a bit of a privilege so it's like for me to go to sport it meant that my mom you know a lot of the time we would have had one car so my mom would have had to get up in the morning like get ready and go when we were, would drop my dad to work while we we're being dropped to school so that then she had the car to bring me to training so you know there was a real understanding that like okay if your mom is getting up and she is organizing the whole day around her having the car so she can bring you to training in the afternoon like you better do your homework like you're not you don't get to not like do your homework because you want to go to the running club so yeah, it was, it was great. Like, it was great. I look back and I'm just like, it was such a laugh, but also it was like a laugh. But then there was very, like, you kind of had to, as I said, you had to do not even do well at school, but do the best to your ability. And my parents knew well when I wasn't bothered. I not, I didn't hate school. I found the structure of school difficult. And I can definitely say that now looking back. And I'm really intrigued about the relationship of growing up uh, and parenting uh, as an elite athlete. A lot of the young people that I would see in over the 24 years that I'm doing this job who would perform at a high level of sport are under incredible pressure at a very young age to be on the top of their game and to, you know, to keep. And there's, there's coaches who are, you know, invested in them and there's communities that are invested in them. And it, it can start quite early where, you know, you're spotted as that person has potential that person has talent and there's a kind of a and there there is a natural investment on behalf of the parents to be going to running meets and to bring you to things and to you know so there's an obligation in some respects and I I I would have seen lots of young people who maybe would say I'd love to give up swimming but my mom and dad would be devastated if I do and so there was a kind of a a pressure and I think the also the, the bit you mentioned about the teenage 
part you know there's going out on a saturday night but you've training sunday morning or you maybe are you have to make sacrifices at a very young age which i'm guessing is ambivalent you really love your sport and you really want to do that but i'm guessing you might want to be going out with your pals as well or doing what they're doing or you know what was that experience like Dervil, as as things started to heat up in terms of expectation i've thought about this a lot particularly because my parents' approach to it was so different to what people think it would have been. So my parents had no expectation that I was going to go on and become an elite athlete, do that as a job and go to the Olympics. Like that was never, ever what they thought I would do. It's not that they didn't want me to do, but they just felt like, to be honest, it was probably a little bit far-fetched. They were very like, look, the reality is most people don't do that as a job. They don't make it like you have to. They felt really passionate about me being able to go to college and get a degree. They cared a lot more about that than they cared about me going to the Olympic Games. So that was the foundation. And my dad is such a massive sports fan. Like he loves sport. He brought me to sport every weekend when I was a kid, as in to rugby matches. So it's not they didn't love sports like my father loved it, but he also was very sensible like this was, you know, when I'm born in 81, 80s Ireland, you're in a recession. Like, I think it's different to what it is maybe now when kids show promise. And also I was in a sport. So take athletics, very different swimming. So you would not train at the level in athletics that you train at swimming to make it. Like I could think of nothing worse. And I I know this is an awful thing to say and swimmers are going to kill me, but I could think of nothing worse than one of my kids being an elite swimmer. I think the the lifestyle is horrendous. I think it's way harder than the lifestyle of what my elite at the life's career would have been as an adult. So I couldn't imagine putting that on a child. I couldn't imagine ever wanting either of my kids to do it at that level. I think it's a lot to give up for what you get out of it. That's just my opinion. But athletics, so take the young Dervil, a teenage Dervil. When I was a kid, yes, I was always winning. Athletics was complete joy to me. It started on the green in front of my house, racing the boys. It went on to, a te- like my parents didn't put me into a running club. A teacher rang my parents and said to them, listen, she keeps beating everybody. Like, I think you need, she loves to run. And my dad was like, yeah, I know she loves to run. Like we want her to see a bit of everything, but she was like, no, look, put her into an athletics club like she will love it and I went in and I did love it but what as I got older like as I came 12 13 14 I remember this so 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 well like what I loved as much as the running was the crack and the boys and I loved being on the track and being at one side of the track and seeing the boys at the other side not they weren't separate but there might have been a boy doing a different event that I kind of maybe had a bit of a thing for or you know myself and my pal and that's the honest truth so for me that sport became very, it became very social, but I was able to, in athletics, you can actually do, you can be that person that's having the crack and still training. It's very social as a sport for teenagers, unless it's changed significantly since I was a teenager. It was very, very social. So, and you talk about, you know, you're giving up nights out and stuff. I didn't want to be doing loads of nights out. It kind of wasn't my thing. I didn't enjoy, my mother still jokes like, that I loved having the crack and I still love having the crack, but I didn't love going to nightclubs and stuff. And I did look like we all did when we were young, like snuck, snuck into nightclubs, but she'd laugh because they'd have to collect me early because I'd say the music was too loud. So I'd sneak in, I'd do all that. But like, and I would have had a few nights where I would have had a great time. And then I would have been up on a Sunday morning running hills in the Glen and Cork on the north side. And I just remember saying to my mom, you're going to need to stop in Burger King. 
on the way home like I'm I need Burger King like and but my parents never flagged that or if not they never turned around and said you cannot be going out now with the, the girls from school on a Saturday night and running hills on a Sunday morning and going to Burger King like that's you can't they they never they just said okay that's fine and I think they had a huge amount of trust in me finding my way, but also they kind of set the parameters of like athletics is your passion. It's not your career. And you all, you need to have this solid foundation of education. And actually that stayed with me. So like I knew my degree was as important as qualifying for the Olympics. I knew I remember I won a European medal in 2010, broke the Irish record, the Irish record that still stands. And I submitted my thesis for my master's three weeks later. That thesis was as important to me and my parents as that medal was. So whilst my parents, it's not like they're crazy academic people, but I think they're just very like, they're quite into like security. And I think maybe that comes from that period of time in Ireland. And that's what impacted them is like, you know, they wanted me to be, always independent and that I could make my own way and they felt athletics was a quite a unstable career so they always wanted me to do both so they never ever pushed and the ironic thing I don't know is that ironic was them not pushing made me it was very self-driven like I'll never forget like I tell the story all the time to people the Olympics 2004 I absolutely bombed. It was a complete disaster. I qualified as a surprise the year before. No one expected me to qualify. I qualified. I remember my mother couldn't believe it. She was like, you what? For the Olympics? Really? And I was like, genuinely, well, I'm like, ran the standard. This is what's happening. She's like, oh my God, I can't believe it. The Olympics are fantastic, right? And all she cared about was like, they went to the Olympics, right? And she was just like, oh my God, Athens is such a fantastic place. Honestly, their, their focus on, my dad would have probably cared a bit more about the performance and being a bit more interested. It's not that my mom wasn't interested, but it's like, she wanted me to enjoy it. That's all my mother cared about. She wanted me to enjoy it. So I ran, the race is a disaster. It probably came last in my heat. To this day, I've never looked up the result. And I came up into the stand and I was devastated. I remember sitting on my own outside the Olympic Stadium before I went up to my parents in the stand, just crying and being like, this is so hard. I don't want to be in this position. What can I do to not be in this position again? And I just stand and my mother was crying and I was like, oh my God, she feels how I feel. And she was like, I'm so proud. I'm so, and she was crying through joy. And I was like, oh my God, this is not a joyful moment. Like I'm devastated. And I was so cross with her. I was like, mom. I'm devastated and she was just like oh love I was so proud and you looked so nice out there and then and she and like so so I don't know if that makes sense to you from what you would have seen with sport over the years it probably doesn't (laughs) listeners can't see this but I'm beaming listening to you there just think and I'm beaming thinking about your mum because that's exactly how you should be right from the point of view of the I always say this it is absolutely okay to want your children to do well, but it is a big problem if you need them to. Do you know what I mean? And so the issue, I think it, it is so the exception as opposed to the rule, what you've just described in my experience. And maybe my experience is biased because I probably only see the children who run into trouble in their mental health and well-being at elite levels because maybe the pressure they're under. But one question I would have, you would have competed internationally. So would you have seen the pushy parents around oh. your colleagues and your, you know, in that atmosphere? 
like a hundred percent. And this is what was so interesting about it is my parents would have experienced the pushy parents. And I remember being a teenager and up at an Irish schools competition and a parent saying to my mother, deadly serious, saying, um, listen, could I have a phone call with you about what you're feeding her? And my mother was like, sorry. And she was there because look, obviously you've got her on some kind of diet and it's some kind of, and my mother was like her, I have to grate the onions into her food. She's as fussy as anything. Like my mother was just like, what are you talking about? Like she likes Weedabix and grated onions into her dinners. She won't eat proper vegetables. And like, so from that age, my parents started experiencing that. And I was probably 15, maybe 15 ish at the time. And, but my, my parents used to do really interesting things that I look back and I think they deserve so much credit and they've probably never gotten it enough maybe from me. But actually, no, because I do, I do really admire their approach. Like, so they would drop me to the track and it was like, there were the parents that stayed and that watched. That wasn't my parents. So they dropped me to the track and they were, I had to make sure I had my stuff that I needed at the track for training as a teenager. And they dropped me to the track and then my mom said, look, I'm going for a walk with Mary or whoever, or I'm going to pop up and do the shopping now because you're going to be here for an hour and a half. So I never, I was never on the track conscious of them watching my training. Like they did not know what was going on with my, they didn't know if I had a good training session, a bad training session, if I was off trying to have a crack, like crack with the boys, they just didn't know. The only way they would know is if another parent said it to them or if a coach said it to them. But my coaches were similar to my parents in that they were like, it's, this is, this is about a bit of a laugh. And so I see, so on the circuit say like I have trained with people who were far superior in talent than I was, who never made it, who never made senior championships the way they should have who never won medals and I would have seen the pressure and stress that they were under from their family from their community that they're the superstar in their community whereas I was running my parents it wasn't the be all and end all to my parents they didn't they didn't care if I won or lost they cared that I was having the crack and I was enjoying it and I came home in the car happy if I came home in the car sad they did they wanted to know why and I honestly to this day they're like that about everything I do so like anything I do they just want to know that there's that there's enjoyment and then they want to know that I'm doing sensible stuff as well so that I can actually like you know pay my mortgage and <laughs> live my life so yeah I'm fascinated by it as a topic because I see how my parents were and also my husband went to Olympics for sailing and I have obviously spent a lot of time with his family and his parents. And I would say to you that his parents are not dissimilar. Whilst they're very different, my parents and his parents are really different. But their approach to him sailing, it was so similar. It was like, here's your equipment. Like his mom jokes and says to me, he was six years old. And he said to her, you don't know how to tie up this boat properly. Like, And she said, well, then you do it yourself from here on out. If you think you can do it, you do. And she said she never again did it. And she let him, and he figured it out. And she said she, she, he tied it wrong many times. And she was just like, well, you have to figure it out now. So I like that. I, I really, really like that. And I've, and honestly, to this, I've never, ever felt pressure off my parents for anything I've done. And another one is like the Beijing Olympics was a really low point in my career. 
And my mother still tells people it was the best holiday of her life. <laughs> best holiday she ever had. Like she only said it to me recently. She said, do you remember that time you went to Beijing to have a great time? And I didn't. I had a terrible time. But, you know, she's like, yeah, but we, the whole experience, terrible. I'm talking about the race, the whole experience. And like, and like, she's not, I'm probably making her sound a bit airy fairy. She isn't, but she's just very about like life. Like, let's. She, she doesn't sound airy fairy at all. She sounds incredibly <laughs> grounded in what's yeah, important, to be honest. And, and, and I think, and I, I don't want to labor this point because uh, we do have to get to parenting at some point, but I do, I, this is fascinating. And I hope parents who are listening out there who, who are the kind of, nutrition strength and conditioning parents who are asking other parents what are you feeding your child take heed of this and I think the elite athlete and and, uh, my friend and colleague Shane Smith and I always say this is not created in the one hour training that you do a week it comes within you you know there's something in the individual that that is self-driven and I wonder if your parents approach did perhaps drive you because they said to you you know it's a passion it's not a job that you know you might not make it this is not right and when I was starting out my my mother was a nurse and I started out in psychiatric nursing and they all said to me you'll never last you wouldn't stick that you're not disciplined enough and that was all I needed to say well watch me you know and I wondered if in a reverse psychology way did your parents kind of apathy drive you to to prove that you could make a job out of this that you could make a career out of this and that it was something that that you did find in some ways alternatively motivating I definitely find it alternatively motivating because they did not hand me athletics on a plate so what they did was they facilitated my training they facilitated all my racing by bringing me and chatting to me but they did like when I decided to go to college to UCD, I filled out the application for for it on my, you know, I did the CEO, I made the decision, this is where I wanted to be for my running. I applied for a scholarship. I never showed them that application. I just submitted it. I so they their lack of wanting me to be a track superstar made me want to be a track superstar on my own terms so it made me be like okay they're not going to do it and I don't expect them nor do I want them to do it I want to do it so I I had I took a lot of responsibility and I think that's I think that's a really I think being able to give a child the capacity to be independent and responsible is incredible and the other thing that they did which was massive and I know we kind of touched on it before we came on was they my they never made me feel like sport for girls and boys was different. So my dad was a massive sports fan, still is, and to this day, like he still, and it's not it's not that he goes out of his way. This is how he views it. So when I started getting into track, he was just like, yeah, like of course you're sport you're sporty. It's not that you're a sporty girl. It's your sporty, Derville sporty, like Derville sporty. That's what it is. And it was never a thing. And when he used to bring me up to rugby at the weekends, it wasn't like he was bringing up his little girl. He was bringing up a sporty kid who wants to run around and throw ball at the boys. And it wasn't a weird thing. It was never, it was never a discussion point. And even the other day, you know, before we went into this lockdown, he came into the house and he sat down and he said to me, oh, you know what? I turned on the television last night and Judy Murray Andy Murray's mom and coach was on interviewing Dean Asher Smith. Very interesting. Some of the points I think you would have enjoyed it. You should try and find it. I thought, thought some of their insights were interesting. And he wasn't telling me that 
that these were two that it was interesting because they're sports people and mm. I think that I think that other gift that he gave me of not thinking I shouldn't be in sport because I'm a girl was very unique at the time and something that I'll always be grateful for and he's never he's always made me feel no matter what area I wanted to go into that might be more male that there's no reason why I shouldn't walk into it so like the first job I did after I retired was I did some work with Munster Rugby which is obviously male and I never felt like I shouldn't be there because I was female I felt like I was a professional athlete for 14 years and had a huge amount of experience to bring to the table that's how I felt and I think he he deserves a lot of credit for that and I think dads to girls and most things to my husband if you have a young girl and you have a young boy might be mindful of how you speak to them be mindful of how you position sport and if you're always putting sport on your telly try to find where you see women as well and where you see girls as well because in our house Sonia Sullivan was the queen because she was so amazing so I saw that a lot and that definitely influenced me and my dad was a big driver of that it's just how he was it's how he is and I, I want to credit you with something here, because I think from a female role model point of view, and I'm in this job 25 years, so I'm seeing young people. And I would say yourself and Katie Taylor represent probably for that generation, maybe the last two generations, something of possibility. Do you know what I mean? That, 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 and I understand that women's sport is making huge strides in recent years, and that's fantastic. But it's... The, the the issue that I would have with this is that participation is difficult for both think for both genders to try and stay in, but especially for girls. And I would say to you know girls at fourteen, fifteen years of age. And I've, I've I've I had a chat with them earlier on, and there was a group of about nine youngsters, and two of them were still involved in sport, and the rest of them were not. And the 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 reason they said was it just got too serious. Do you know what I mean? It's it's kind of if you're not really taking it, willing, willing to train two days a week and do your matches on the Saturday and, you know, go into it, then nobody wants to, to entertain you. And like the, the issue you mentioned, and I don't mean to have a go at swimmers, but I remember saying to somebody before, why do you need to be in the swimming pool at half five in the morning? Like, what, is there something that we're more aerodynamic first thing in the morning? And they said, no, it's to separate the splashers from the Olympian. And that's, it's to just to, it's purely to, to kind of prove your commitment to it. And I just think there, what we really would, I would love to see happen is a five-a-side culture for teenagers where you just turn up and you play and you take a bib and, you, you know, you play for an hour and go home. And because there's, just because a child isn't competitive doesn't mean they're not sporty. Uh, 100%. And, and it doesn't mean that they shouldn't feel like that is a world that they can't inhabit. And I, I think it's really incredibly disappointing. And I also think, I think about this a lot, like, because I, I would have done my degree in sociology, I would have done sociology of sport, and I find it all very interesting. And I don't, I don't want my children to do sport to be champions, right? I don't, I could not care less. If that's what they end up doing, because they love it, and they're driven to do it, and they're ambitious, happy days hopefully they have a bit of crack to it I want them to do it because of what it gives to them health wise what it gives to them like life skill wise what it gives to them in terms of friends and I just think it gives so much more I think the whole elite side of it is that's 0.1% or 1% of everybody who steps on and you know I would love like when coaches start taking it seriously and start talking about elite level I would love to line up a hundred people and pull out one and be like, you have 
a hundred people and you're catering to one, why would you not cater to 99? Like a successful coach should be keeping kids in it. It shouldn't be that your kid is national champion. That doesn't make you a success as a coach. It makes you a success of the kids who are struggling, who aren't hurting zero starting one day a week. If the kids who are doing two days but maybe aren't confident enough to do a match will start doing a match that's a success at sport winning national championships and all this kind of stuff for me that's not because it's so small it's the elite of the elite and yes I happen to be one of the elite of the elite but I know that that is unusual I know most people will never ever do that and I appreciate it and it was a massive massive privilege but I don't yeah, I, I find, yeah, and it's, I don't coach, um, I coach and fit as family, obviously, but I don't coach elite kids or elite sports people. And it's something at some point I will, I would like to do, I'd like to coach, but I'd like to coach for participation. Um, Excellent. I, I, I just want to say that my, my sporting moment of the last number of months was on fit as family. And it was a girl called Aoife Rourke who was up on a, a pole, uh, one-legged, uh, you were obviously there, you remember it well. My God, what a, a, an act of endurance. It was absolutely phenomenal. Her leg was shuddering and shaking under the pressure, and she was, she was not giving up there. That was a, uh, an excellent example of, com- of the competitive nature and her, her endurance level. I, I was blown away by it. Yeah, she was amazing. But I think it's, I think it's good for girls to see that you know teenage girls to see she's 17 and Mm. she's up on television she's up there and she's it's not about how she looks it's not about is she wearing the latest gear it's not about how does she have a picture on social media it's about her standing on one leg and doing it so her her um, family can drag a few sandbags around the place like it's very pure and that's why I think her performance and there's lots of other performances like that in the show this year and also lots of them are from females which always gives me a lot of joy and it just yeah it's very it's very pure and it's what we I think is what we should be looking at at times you know as opposed to other things absolutely and and so we better get on to some parenting issues here so you do I'm, I'm not buying the fact that you're not a competitor because I think you are and I think anyone who can perform and achieve what you have achieved must have a degree of competitiveness about you and you know the way you uh, encourage your teams on, on uh, fitness family. It, it matters to you if you don't win, uh, and that's so. Do you take that into your parenting role? Is it about being the best parent on the planet, or how do how how do you approach it, or, or what are the things that come up for you? No, like neither myself, my husband, both of us are ridiculously competitive people. Like I took up tennis in the past 12 months because I wanted to do something that I could try and beat someone else at and that I had never, I'd never ever played tennis and I took it up and we play each other at tennis and it's really hard because we don't really, we don't really talk normally afterwards for about an hour and a half because I'm really cross at him because I think he gets smug when he wins <laughs> and it annoys me. Um, and he thinks I'm just a really bad loser. So it's somewhat unhealthy that we've been doing. But anyway, so when it comes to parenting, I really don't think that we're competitive. See, the, our kids are still quite small. So like Archie's not even two and Daphne's five and a half. Daphne within her is competitive as a person. I see it. And my mother is like, I, I rang my mom one day. I said, mom, like, seriously, like how used to deal with it when I lost? Because when she's losing um if I don't let her win she's losing the plot and my mother was like well 
my mom's like first of all I never bothered racing because you're out in the green racing other kids and she was like but also you lost so rarely and you just so she my mom was like I don't really know because you didn't lose that much but my mom was like Gerva like I see I see the way you are and that little look on her face where she's just like I just really want to win this so I don't think as parents I really don't think we'll ever be that competitive because also I think the thing people need to understand about people who've elite sports be a lot of them a lot of the ones I would be friendly with right is you know how hard it is I know how hard it was yes it was a privilege to be an elite athlete but nothing I do I will ever do work-wise will be as hard as what it was to be an elite athlete nothing will why would I be trying to force her into that unless she really wants it unless she really wants that unless Archie really wants to do something that I will never ever want to be the person pushing them into it they'd have to find it and also, I don't think it's a reflection on me as a parent if they're unreal. It's a, they're on, they're just unreal at something because I see in them like I think we all think your kids aren't like my kids are my proudest achievement because they're fab and I adore them. But they're also they are who they are themselves. I can only influence a certain amount. They are just certain ways, and I even see it in Archie. And he's only two. Like they are certain ways, and yeah it's great and I can influence certain things but what is in them as people I'm not sure how much I can influence that yeah I think there's a there's a great saying you know your your child's medals and accolades are not a reflection on your parenting your child's Mm -hmm. ability to be coachable to be a good team member and to be kind to other people is the one thing I would say to you is and I, I I'm open to challenge on this but I I do believe competitiveness is an aspect of temperament so I don't think you can do anything about that. I think that's okay. Easy, right. Uh, you can't change it. Uh, so I don't think you can make someone who's not competitive competitive. And I don't think you can make someone who's competitive not competitive, if that makes that's sense. So it's just in you, right? Uh, but you can work with it. Uh, okay. and, and the competitiveness may not be the problem here, but her reaction to loss and her management of her competitiveness is. So the issue is... Does Shane, again, Shane Smith would say this, you know, the tiger and the shark in their hunting have a 5% success rate. So they fail 95% of the time. So everyone fails. It is part of life. And so preparing a child for failure is an important part of their growing up. It's an important part of resilience. And, you know, we talk about there was a, a, I think a Dublin football team, they they hadn't been beaten from under sevens for seven years. They'd won everything. And people were saying how great that was. That's not great. That's dreadful because when they eventually lost at under 13, they were devastated. So the issue around childhood is interesting, Derville, because I think it's a gradual introduction of reality, right? So you, you gradually realize, you know, from four years of age, you know, I'm, I'm Spider-Man, you know, at eight years of age, you kind of go, hang on, everyone thinks they're Spider-Man to 12 year age, years of age saying, gosh, I'll never be Spider-Man to being a kind of... Um, self-worth driven 14 year old who believes how did I ever think I was ever going to be you know so there's a, a kind of process of introduction to reality and competitiveness and loss and disappointment and all those kind of adverse life experiences need to be paced at a level that the child can manage so it's not about crushing them their spirit at five and a half years of age and beating them at everything but it's to try and create kind of context and perspective which is really difficult, you know. So if you allow your daughter to win everything because she's a bad loser, that's not necessarily teaching her to lose. It's teaching her to, you know, it's, it's overvaluing that. And, you know, 
the the idea that you know what we do and what we say and children's ability to pick up on the between the lines stuff like if you're saying it's not important if you don't lose but you don't speak to dad after a tennis match for three days <laughs> she's going to maybe pick up on that maybe mom's not being 100 percent honest with this so it is it, it's really about the difference between want and need and again i go back to that you know everyone wants to win but we don't need to you know, we survive loss, we survive defeat. And, you know, I, an, an old comrade of yours, um, Paul O'Connell, you know, once spoke to me about, you know, he said, you know, any sports person will have failed way more than they will ever have succeeded. You know what I mean? You you have way more bad days than you have good, you know, in, in, the, in the sense of, but those good days are so important and they're so iconic that they stay in people's minds. But, if your if your daughter is competitive and she is to be a competitor, she has to learn how to lose and how to you know to manage that. I still think she's a little bit young for that life lesson. I still think I'd be letting her, you know, win seven out of ten times. But there has to be a moment in time when she will lose. You know, and and yeah. uh, through sibling and family relationships, it's sometimes good to allow that to happen. And whether and and again, you'll see it. It'll go from the tennis match to the trivial pursuit to the, you know, it, it's not it's competitive isn't, isn't selective. You want to win everything. And as somebody who instinctively is competitive myself, you know, I've a three wood of mine that's somewhere in the middle of a lake in a golf course in Kildare because I hit a bad shot and flung it into the, you know, so I'm not immune to that. And I, I can see two of my children have that competitive instinct. One, absolutely not. Doesn't give a hoot and is there for the crack. But it is about allowing them to work with temperament. It's not about, you can't change it, but you can work with it. Uh, so I think you pace it uh, and good parenting is good pacing. So not overly introducing a child to too much responsibility too quickly, because that's traumatic, but not enabling them and protecting them from life and adversity too long because that disables their coping strategies as well. So, you know, I, I would think if she, at the moment, if she's winning seven out of 10 times, that's maybe as much of a, a, a kind of peaceful, quiet life that you're going to. But managing her when she is upset and when she has lost it and giving the perspective and giving the it's it's managing the disappointment, not avoiding it. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. Yeah. And I can see that she's getting better even in the past few months, because I think at this age, development happens so quickly that she is sort of open to listening to it's not the end of the world there's another way and, and i think children way. though they see the world very black and white so if you win or you lose there's no there isn't the whole well did you gain from the experience you know that that's yeah. not that's not and that hasn't come yet so you have to kind of work with that as well that you know but what i would say to 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 any parent out there is that if we use success and failure as a spectrum so there's degrees of success and there's degrees of failure because one of the, the greatest, I think, challenges of our time, and I would see this hugely in teenage girls, success is nine to 10. Anything below nine is failure. And that's a real issue. And it's a drive for perfectionism. And it is, uh, our world has become so performance related and we are so focused on outcome and nothing on effort that I would think as a parent, if you can teach your child the spectrum of success and the spectrum of failure, that's, you know, nine out of 10 is great. Eight out of 10 is good. Seven out of 10 is not bad. And, six, you know, and for the competitor, that can be sometimes difficult because maybe 
in order to compete, you must have a high threshold of what success is. Um, but for children, as a life lesson, it is a spectrum of success and a spectrum of failure. Because if you go do your Leaving Cert this year and you want 520 points and you need to get that course and you get 510, you're going to be devastated. 510 is amazing. Uh, a bit, I, I think I've taken a leaf out of your mother's book of saying, but the experience, Dervla, yeah. of Beijing, you know, the race was one yeah. part of it and that didn't work out so well for any of us. But remember, we saw that. We saw this. So she was seeing it as a spectrum of experience. She was, she was seeing it as a process, uh, not a yeah. destination. Um, and that's how she sees. And that's how she sees everything. And I think I need to probably take a bit of a leaf out of her book with that with my parenting. Yeah, and and, and I think we could all take a, a leaf from your mum's approach to things. Uh, she, I think she's quite a bit more sussed into things than maybe we are giving her credit for in this conversation. But yeah, so it is about that kind of middle ground. So the competitiveness, allow them, teach them how to fail and teach them how to, to survive failure, to survive disappointment. These are inevitable parts that create the person we are. Uh, and by scaffolding that or bypassing it or ring-roading it, we actually aren't doing our children any favours because when issues arise at 16 or 17 years of age where you can't fix it for them, they don't have any resilience built up or they don't have any currency in the bank around adversity management or frustration tolerance. And these are things that you have to, you have to learn to wait. It's not an innate skill. You have to learn boredom. You have to learn all of those things. And as parents, we are responsible for teaching the tough stuff as well as teaching the celebrations. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think the second part of it is, and touching on that perfectionism is that kind of the rise of social media. And how we can yeah. filter, edit, you know, cut, paste and make things out to be perfect. And I do believe, and you have a daughter, so the rise of perfectionism and the drive of perfectionism in teenage girls is really problematic. And we have lots of young people with eating disorders and obsessionality and all those sorts of things because the iconic image that they are following is filtered. It's designed, it's, you know, it's it's... Uh, cultivated in a way that performs a kind of a, a standard that none of us could reach. And uh, I, I think protecting your children from a drive for perfectionism, if you want to be the best that you can be for yourself, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're doing it when it's driven by what will other people think, then it's a different set. It's a completely different motivation. Have you thought about the introduction of social media with your daughter and son, or is that... Is too early in the day to think about that. No, I think I think about it all the time, and this is something I'd mentioned to you because I have, like, I obviously have social media, and it's a big part of. I would say my job is the best way to describe it because, like, I'm trying to share a lot of healthy lifestyle stuff, but there's a, I think there's a genuinity in there that I always want to share a little bit of my life and the fact that I am a busy mom and I have two kids, and it's not like. I don't want to just put up a recipe and not put up context. And the reason I'd be cooking this is because it's quick to make and the kids are hanging off me, you know? So I think it's important. I've always wanted to share that for the genuinity of it, because that is my life. I don't want to just box the business side of it. So there's a little bit of a blur. And I suppose my, some of my husband have had a lot of conversations about about pictures of the kids online. So as a mom right and as at the basic right I obviously think my kids are doty and I'm mad about them and you go you know you love hearing that everyone else thinks they're doty there is that you know you're like oh they are doty but then the flip side of that is I'm like there there is a 
reality around the protecting them and them not being too out there. So I kind of made a decision a few years ago with my daughter, probably from when she was about three-ish, that I would just wouldn't put many pictures up of her, particularly her face. So sometimes I put, and I wouldn't give too much information about her personally. Like, so I'm on here obviously chatting to you about her, but I wouldn't be, because I think I felt, do you know what I suppose I felt if she went into school or she went into Montessori and a mom of a kid that she was there with was watching my stories and I was talking about her and a kid says, I don't know. So I don't know. I discuss this a lot actually with Mairead Ronan, who I know has been on with you. And Mairead, myself and Mairead are always having conversations about it because Mairead is, is quite a public figure as well. And Mairead is like saying to me, you know, with her, her decision with her girls and her son is like, do what feels natural. Like, you know, I don't do stuff. Like I would never, ever do a commercial thing with my kids involved. I just wouldn't. It's, I wouldn't be open to that. I think that that's that's just for me my value set and how I want to parent them so I actually would love to know your perspective of sharing images of your children and information about your children through social media brilliant I mean the the, <laughs> the, the topic of this is called sharenting right yeah. <laughs> the idea of sharing your parenting role there's mixed views on it for the uh, I, I think in terms of the the higher the profile the figure the more you maybe have to concern yourself about it right mm. but in general terms children have a right to be forgotten right yeah. so from the point of view of you you're sharing information about your child as they're growing up this is all digital footprint mm. that you know from the point of view of if your child and we just talked about not having kind of pushy parents but if your child is going to run for president do you want the images of them, you know, in the bath or falling over or whatever, you know, kind of getting into the hands of people, you know, who, who may use that against them. The issue, again, is does the child have the right to consent to those images being shared? And they don't. But as a parent, you are acting in the role of consenting for your child in many other areas. So, the, again, this is a, an issue of discretion. Now, personally, I have not and I wouldn't tend to share a lot around my family life, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the role that I have. But the in recent weeks, and I, I, I think I've my producer, the, the podcast to blame, he kind of says, you know, the podcast is about getting to know you. People have to get to know who you are and they have to be able to relate to you. So maybe do introduce them to. And so we've done, you know, we do the 100 days of walking at the moment. And my daughter and I kind of would take a few, picture and put it on Twitter and say, you know, we're out day six or whatever the case may be. But uh, I'm kind of managing it and testing it for myself at the moment just to see what the reaction might be. Surprisingly, I mean, you could share a podcast link and you get very few likes and things. You share a picture of a cute kid and it's, you know, it's, it's astronomical, which is nice because people obviously interact with that and interact with that in, in, in a positive way. But for me, it is absolutely down to your own discretion, right? I don't believe in children being kind of monetized or I certainly don't think they Neither should do I. you know they shouldn't play a role in your brand and I think you can overshare the degree of their own you know their right to be forgotten is something we need to be really mindful of mm -hmm. but the issue around you know sharing your pride in your own daughter or their own achievements or the things that they've done I think that's a really reasonable way of approaching you know, parenting, it's part of, it's no different to, but I think that the network that you share with, uh, you're always, you're advertising to a mob, 
And that's the thing on social media. So the the mob can re- react in ways that, you know, that are mean or mean-spirited. And I certainly would not want to put myself through that. And I certainly wouldn't want to introduce my children to that either. So I do think it comes down to your own discretion. I don't see anything fundamentally wrong with it in moderation. I think in terms of, and like everything else, I, I'm using this kind of four to seven model. You know, if you rate anything out of 10, if it's in four to seven, it's fine. It's the one, two, three, the eight, nine, ten. So if you're going around with your children, uh, not to make judgments, but like Michael Jackson with veils over their faces, maybe you're one, two, three, you know, but if you can't go on Instagram without seeing Derville O'Rourke's two kids in the bath, then maybe you're eight, nine, ten. And so it is something about trying to manage that middle. But I would, you know, pause before you post and think about what the implications of that might be down the line. I'm very conscious of that and what you hit on it's really interesting to me because I do hope and I do try to be closer to a four than an eight mm-hmm. but that one two three I think there's the other side of it where people in whatever whether they profile or not allude to their kids but are it almost comes across as obsessively secretive about them I think that that can be slightly odd thing as well and I think you know like if I I take traditional media if I'm somewhere you know if I go to an athletics event and I bring my daughter and a photographer asks me can they take a picture of me and my daughter in front of her I mean she's five and a half uh, obviously the last time that happened was a long time ago but she she still would have been I'm not going to shove her out of it because you know and I'm like okay that's fine she, she might end up in the newspaper but I'm when that's happening, I'm conscious and I'm like, okay, where and I'm am I okay? And I take a second and I, it's that pausing. And I think social media is so much quicker and easier to do it and to share. So yeah, I think I just think it's really I think it's fascinating. And I think as a parent, I feel a responsibility of that that right to consent and that digital footprint. But I also don't want to be like as you say, the veil over them. Now, I can't look at my child. And, and it's interesting because I, I think that you do see examples of pictures and you're going, oh my God, I, I, I don't think that child will appreciate that in 10 years time. Yeah. And, and again, that's the 910 stuff. But someone once said to me recently, actually, who would you love to interview the most, right? In terms of your ideal person. And interestingly, I said, Stephen Cluxton, right? Not for any other reason other than he's an enigma to me. I I mean, from the point of view, because he says so little, I really would like to chat to him. And I I think you can do, that can be the the reversal of, if nobody sees Derval O'Rourke's children, they become the enigma of, let's try and find them. There must be something in it, you know, in in that sense. And it is, if you omit, over omit, you can become overly kind of targeted from that point of view. Do you know what I mean? So you become a bit of a, as I say, an enigma in that sense. So the the issue is about trying to get that moderately right. I would think, and I, I think this is a message for all parents, especially over the next number of weeks and months when we're in our homeschooling issue, the the idea of, you know, going onto the WhatsApp groups and seeing, you know, oh, my child did two hours of French this morning and we've now built a costume the size of a robot and we're working on an engineering kind of standard model for art this afternoon. That doesn't help anyone, right? Nobody is looking at that going, oh, you're fantastic. Everyone's going, oh my God, my children have not got off the couch and they're still in their pajamas and they've been living on ice pops for the last three hours because I've been working. Um, And it does have an impact. And whatever ego boost you may need for yourself or whatever the case may be, please be mindful 
of the other parents in who, who are watching on from this and going, oh my God, I wish I were them, or this is making me feel dreadful. Yeah, I and I'll just say quickly on that. I, I obviously am in some WhatsApp group, parent groups, and I remember during one of the lockdowns being under work pressure to get a couple of things done and someone was messaging in different resources that they had been using for their children that day and that they had done all this like seasonal stuff around something Halloween or something. And I was just like, oh my God, like I 100% just gave the kids a few biscuits, put on Peppa because it's one thing that they would both watch and I am not seasonal ready with them. And I felt, I did, I was like, oh my God, I'm dreadful at the parenting. Um, So we all feel it. And I think, yeah, being... But also, you know, the other thing I'd say is uh, there's no harm in muting some groups. This is it. Absolutely. groups, You know, (laughs) you don't have to exit because that looks quite aggressive. You can just put it on mute. Derville has left the group. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) But no, I I mean, I I just remember from the last time and I I think from the point of view, you know, when you do see the pictures of we went on a nature walk and we found three hedgehogs and, you know, you are you know, dread going into your fifth Zoom meeting of the day and haven't seen your children in four hours. Just be mindful of of the others who are maybe struggling out there uh, and you know by all means be very proud of your own achievement and it's fantastic that you're doing that but maybe the sharing part might have an implication for other people yeah so be careful of the sharing thing Um, and uh, again anything else on your mind around the parenting issue we talked about the competitive child we talked a little bit about the sharing thing and how to manage social media and things like that and was there any other questions that you had yeah my other one was um and I, I find this tricky, right? It, when it has come to COVID, our decision in our household was, I don't put on the news in front of the kids, right? Because I find the news hard enough to take myself, particularly at the moment. So we made a decision that we would only, when we consume media, it's when the kids are in bed. So we, and we don't talk, so we don't talk about how many cases, if there's deaths, we never not never like but we try not to in front of the kids but what I've found is other pe- other people then kind of would be telling them stuff and I have found that hard as a parent because I suppose maybe I've been overprotective of going I don't want I don't want um my daughter more than my son because he's only two nearly two I don't want her to be leaving the house thinking you know if, if I have to bring her to the supermarket that she's in fierce danger or that you know her grandparents might not make it through the night I you know and maybe I'm being too protective on it. I don't. I honestly don't know how to handle it. <laughs> I think there's two sides to this, and again, it comes back to the pay, to pacing piece. You know, you need yeah. to give them the level of information that they are developmentally able to manage. And I think, from the point of view of the COVID stuff, is especially because you do need your. We we all want our children to be conscious of washing their hands and distance yeah. and all that sort of stuff. But we don't want them up till 4 a.m. in the morning worrying about are we going to die tomorrow. And so the the balance is somewhere in the middle there. What I would always say is the world of exposure in that we live in now has meant that we have had to have conversations with our children way before we would ever want to. And so from the point of view of this came up uh, a number of years ago around the the, the Ariana Grande bombing in in, mm. in Manchester. And there was I was asked a lot about how do you explain terrorism to your child? And I was going, I don't want to explain terrorism to my child. I want to, you know, the, the innocence of childhood is something I'm desperate to protect but then they were saying to me, well, if they hear about terrorism in the schoolyard from their other six-year-old or eight-year-olds who say, you know, the terrorists live down the road and they're going to get us, that's not reliable information either. And they're seeing the Sky News loop and they're seeing the advertisements for all this stuff. So best to give them the information on your terms. 
rather than leaving it to an unreliable source. And I think what has the, the world has has really kind of thrown up for us is the the the, the fake news agendas and things. And I, I I've heard stories of three year olds who are coming in in the evenings and asking mum, what are the numbers today? You know, and from the point of view of COVID has created this collective uncertainty and unknown, and we are all consumed by it. Children are not immune to that. They will pick up on those atmospheres. They certainly pick up on, you know, and, and I was out just there over Christmas with my young lad, and he just said that, he's nine, he said, the world is so different. Look at everyone in masks and look at it. And it was like, oh my God, this is dreadful. But it was trying to kind of instill some hope that we will get back to that again. Do you know what I mean? And, and again, trying to, to put the perspective, yes, there's bad things in the world, but there's also really good things. And it's again, trying to balance out fear with hope it's balancing out you know we're yeah we have to lock down but we're going to be able to do that we're doing it for a reason there's a a, you know we're staying inside so that we can go outside and it's an investment and you know and a lot of the the kind of early stuff around covid around you know applauding frontline workers and all that sort of stuff and the hopeful stories of the ga team getting the stuff for the elderly parents that's not very much around at the moment and we're we're still in a fatalistic kind of bleakness and i really worry about children picking up the messaging of of bleakness and fatalism and getting used to things being cancelled and getting used to being disappointed and i really i really worry about that derville to be honest and especially that younger age group especially your you know the 5 to 10 year old who's learning the social world for the first time through these really abnormal circumstances so my view is always you know this is this is the new abnormal but it is temporary and transitory and we should be able to hug hugging is good we just can't do it at the moment but the idea that you know you'd wonder about you know whether they develop intimacy issues or proximity issues because of the template in which they're learning the world from you know and um i saw somebody speaking recently about they have a newborn baby who's I think nine months or something. And she said, he's going to get some shock when he sees another baby that they've never seen another baby, you know, since lockdowns and everything else that have been created. So as well as kind of thinking in the here and now, we do have to think a little bit in the longer term. And I I would always say the most controllable variable you have is the culture of your own family and your own home, you know, and if your child comes out of this lockdown, you know, not having a great deal of knowing one, twos and threes and blue, greens and oranges, but has a safe sense of their world and their relationships and their families and they feel safe in it, then you've done your job. That's the priority here. You know, the other stuff is window dressing. But for Daphne, who's kind of five and a half, it's about feeling safe. It's about knowing where the norm is and pacing it at a level that she can manage, protecting her from the overexposure, which is inevitably out there but also not naively leaving her in a position of vulnerability either, you know, from the point of view of, and I would always say to every parent, the roller coaster approach. I don't know what's up here. This could get scary. There could be things here and you're not making promises, but you're saying whatever happens, we're in it together. Let's huddle in. The two of us are here and we'll get through it. And it's a bit about, you know, we've got this again, a ridiculously un, you know, inappropriate thing to say in a pandemic but to say to your child in terms of their anxiety and their worry what you've got to to manage most and first and foremost is their feelings of safety once they feel safe that's the hierarchy of needs after that they can do the rest of the stuff but again if you're if you're not telling them and they know something's wrong that doesn't feel safe does that make sense yeah it does make sense it does um yeah it's it's definitely been one 
that I have found challenging. And it and actually I think I think I think going at it now from that perspective of safety and bringing it up enough that she's aware of it um but not so much that she, again she thinks we're all going to die like you know um because and I've come across kids who are really fearful in the past you know in our networks in the past year and that's one thing she's never really been is fearful but sometimes and I think it is and I suppose maybe we have to realize we're talking about this topic but it's so abnormal mm. and like you know, she's she one of the things she's at the point now where she doesn't expect to have any sort of activities. She doesn't expect to be able to go to gymnastics, she doesn't mm. expect to be able to go swimming. She has no expectations of that because that pretty much has existed in such a, a minor amount in the past 12 months. And I I think that's so tough, you mm. know, and because mm. she gets such she loves those stuff, and she so you know, it's just a kind of I suppose as a parent then try to find the, the other things go okay like she will have the crack in the woods running around and you know and and I think it's about realizing the temporariness of it you know yeah, what I mean? this, this will pass this will pass but for a year in the life of a five-year-old mm-hmm. is 25 year old years in the life of a hundred year old you know so it's a, it's a quarter of her life so it's a big deal for her so far but think of all the years that she's going to have to go through with hugging people, shaking their hands, not having to keep two meters distance. So the one thing we want, we don't want, what's normative is not normal. What we have to do right now, we have to do right now, but we don't, it's not the right way to do it. And the worst thing that could happen is that children think this is how it has to be forever. Do you know, they, they pick up the wrong message, if that makes sense. But I, I would also say, and again, I'd say this to every parent out there, you know, just because, you know, your child has been on screens far much or they've watched too much Peppa Pig today than is humanly possible, they're still safe and they're still loved. So they've, you know, lived on snacks for the last three hours. That's fine. They're still safe and they're still loved. Your house is a mess. doesn't matter. They're still safe and you're still loved. And once they feel safe and loved, the other stuff will come afterwards. But um, remember, you know, yes, we're in this together, but we're in it for a period of time. And, and when people were in the in the in World War Twos and they were in famines and everything else, they never thought that was going to end either. And it does, and it will. So, by all means, be the caution, but never forget to be the hope. It is the hope and and the fun are the two pieces that I think would be the most mentally sustaining piece for children through this bit. Because I do think lockdown three is tough. I think this is a hard one, and I do think. There is a resignation about, oh, God, not again. And I think they're, as you say, getting used to disappointment. So uh, the hope and the fun uh, alongside the caution is probably the way to go for me. Oh, I love that. The hope and the fun. Mm. Um, we've run out of time, Gerville, but I just I wanted to end this on one, saying one thing to you. And I've meant to say this to you. wanted to say this to you for some time. I actually thought about getting in contact with you. right? Uh, and I, I was uh, treating a young girl with a very severe eating disorder years ago and uh, you know, treating her for a very long time, very, making very little progress. And she uh, found your book, Food for the Fast Lane, I think in 2015, if I'm right. And there was lots of worries about, oh, my God, she's obsessing about it, da, 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 da. I genuinely think that book made the difference in that girl turning a corner uh, and recovering and how she saw your approach to it, how you wrote it and how nourishing it was. Actually, it wasn't necessarily, uh, am I right in saying it wasn't a diet book? It was a a nutrition book. But I, I, after, you know, many years and many discussions, I do think that was a game changer. And I, I wanted to say to you, 
to thank you for that uh, because it was um, certainly a piece, uh, a prop that would seem innocuous at the time that really had a massive impact. And if I had written a book that had made that change, I would like to have known about it as well. So uh, on a personal note, I want to thank you for that. On, a, on the note of the podcast, we just want to really thank you for giving your time today. That was a fascinating discussion. And I, I know people say this all the time, but I actually could do another hour of listening to, to everything that we've talked about and your insights into everything from growing up to teenagers to elite sportism to female role models. It's just been absolutely fantastic. I hope the bits we talked about around the parenting piece at the end were useful for you too, but I think we've certainly got an awful lot out of that episode and, and we, we owe you a debt of gratitude. And, and good, best of luck in everything that you're doing, you, the derbal.ie, and I know you're, there's a, are you saying there was a shop that you have at the moment that people oh, can go yeah. and get products? So. Um, and, you know, you're so kind about the book because I wrote the book and uh, briefly I was never ever would have done it as a diet book I wanted people who wanted to eat well to find a bit of joy in food and it to be tasty and it not to be a diet book and um for it to make a difference to anybody is a massive compliment so thank you and um, yeah so we've shop.derval.ie with my two books and my lifestyle journals on there a couple of prints and we're just adding lovely healthy lifestyle products all the time which is is really it's just been really enjoyable to be honest to be doing that in the middle of this so where, where can we get that or how does it if someone wants you literally go shop.derval.ie it's an online shop we do all Brilliant. the fulfillment from my office in cork um and then derval.ie is just the website fantastic so Dermot O'Rourke, thank you so, so much for your time and your honesty and your insights there. That is an absolutely fantastic episode and I really, really, really enjoyed that chat. So if anyone has any questions around what Derville has talked about with me today, you can get in touch with the Asking for a Parent at Twitter.com or on the Instagram pages or through askingforaparent at gmail.com. And we look forward to listening to all your questions, going through them and answering them in the next episode. But for now, Derville O'Rourke, Irish sporting icon, parent extraordinaire. Thank you ever so much for your time and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me. Bye. 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 And that was the fantastic Dervil O'Rourke there. Wow, she is so interesting. We had such a good chat. The time flew when we were talking about all those things and her fantastic insights into growing up as an elite sports person, you know, having a talent and watching it being nurtured and being able to her a really impressive approach by her parents and I really do think they stand out as really iconic parents of an Irish sporting hero and as she spoke about the challenges of her small child and you know whether as parents we should be you know taking pictures and sharing images of our children or insights into our children on social media fantastic topic to bring up the competitive child how do you manage that and more fantastic questions around How do we manage children's exposure and anxiety through COVID-19? And I just think that was a really super conversation. And Derville has a a natural warmth and uh, kind of a, I suppose, a a fun about her that makes her the conversation really flow. And it was just, as I say, a fantastic opportunity to get to speak to her. And I want to thank Derville O'Rourke for giving her time so kindly to the Asking for a Parent podcast. And if you have any questions about the episodes that Derville and I just had, you can get them into us, or any questions indeed, you can email them to uh, askingforaparent at gmail.com, or you can message us through the Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram platforms. But until next week, take care, stay safe, and bye for now.